Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The year is 2006, and let's pour one out for the youngest wanker on Earth who just died. The movie, Children of Men. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Hello everybody, I am Paul Shear, joined by my friend and film critic Amy Nicholson as we are going to spend this episode talking about the Clive Owen, Alphonse Cuaron classic, Children of Men, a film picked by you, the last in our series of listener picks for our fifth anniversary. And I gotta say, all great picks Got a great email this week from uh, someone who told me that fuzz, we were debating like, what does uh, fuzz mean and hot fuzz? Um, he said that is a slang and a negative slang term for the police. So it's ne- it has a negative connotation. Oh, right. So, that's uh, right. That's so that's right. That's right. So I just wanted to clear that up a couple weeks late, but better late than never. And I also want to give a shout out to um, listener Strong Look DJ on Instagram, who said, actually, as an FYI, knife crime, I think that was like knife crime, the way they talk about it here, is really serious in the UK. Lots of gang violence, teenagers stabbing each other. It is definitely not as quaint as it might sound on paper. Thank you for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I wanted to set the record straight about knife crime. Well, Amy, today we're going to talk about a movie that I think is all crime, bomb crime, I mean, it is, crime, it is uh, a, refugee a society, crime. <laughs> a society yeah. that does even crime make a difference because everything has gone to utter and complete shit. They are living in a world of tribalism and complete and utter disconnection from each other because it's a society of people who cannot make new life. It's a society without children and there is no hope. And this movie is very interesting because it gets more and more real with every year that passes. This idea that humanity is not going to go out with a bang. It's going to go out with a whimper. Well, a whimper and a bang. Whimpers and bangs. If we're lucky, it'll have more baby whimpers, but it'll just be whimpers and bangs. My goodness, this is one of the most dark movies we've ever done. And yet, when I watch this movie, I feel a little 
a little frisson of hope, a little a little fuzz of hope, shall we say? Because I want to agree with Quran that he believes, you know, as he put it, I'm absolutely pessimistic about the present, but I am very optimistic about the future. Quran is a person who believes a lot in the next generation, and that you know he believes his job as an artist is to help help build the platforms that will allow the young to come up with better ideas than our generations have. And so with that, I think he's made a movie that that goes out into the world like a like a challenge. And I, I think that that idea of hope is represented throughout the film. There's so much symbolism here. There's so much to get into. Like, what does the bird tattoo mean on Julianne Moore's throat? What is it about an orange that's so dangerous? And how is this piece reflective of ideas that maybe even support communism or show you the death of neoliberalism. I mean, these are terms that I don't get to use that much on this show. Wow, and I'm excited to do it. Very convincingly. Well, there you go. You know, just get me out of a dictionary. I'm going to have to find out what I mean. Uh, that was very suave. Them. That was yeah. very suave. <laughs> well, Amy, I think there's no time like a present. So take out one of your weird cigarettes and let's unspool it. The year is 2006, and Alfonso Cuaron is finally getting ready to make a movie that has been on his brain for six years. Which is funny, because six years ago, he wasn't interested in it at all. His agent sent him a book called Children of Men, published in 1992 by the author P.D. James. Cuaron refused to read it, but he asked for a summary and thought, hmm, a world without kids, that's interesting. But I I don't want to do a sci-fi story about elites, so no. But Quran kept wondering what characters he would put in this slightly futuristic no-kid setting. And then September 11th happens, and he is stuck for days at the Toronto Film Festival. And it is sinking into him how rapidly a civilization can fall apart. And he's reading philosophers and futurists, and he's thinking that in some way, all of these possible collapses on the horizon, you know, our environment, our economy, our immigration, our freedom of travel, our idealism about the world that we live in, Maybe they're all intertwined. Maybe this collapse is inevitable. Maybe it's already happening. Koran never reads the original book, but he and five other writers put together a script for Children of Men. It's set in 2027, 18 years after the last baby was born on Earth. In the first scene, we learn that the baby has just been murdered, and a lot of people are being randomly murdered everywhere. Turns out when human beings can't replace ourselves by birthing new generations, we're like, whatever, let's get stoned and destructive. And according to Britain, only Britain is safe and they must prevent any other global refugees from coming in. Theo Farron, that's Clive Owen, is a government worker who is pretty checked out from politics until his ex-wife, Julian, that's Julianne Moore, the head of a revolutionary group called The Fishes, asked Theo to help her get travel papers for a refugee named Key, played by Claire Hope Ashity, who we learn later in the film is pregnant. Jesus Christ. Children of Men comes out on December 26, 2006, which is some epic level trolling for people who are like, boy, do I love Jesus, but get that pregnant refugee out of my country. The movie cost $76 million and it does not make its money back. And it does not even make as big of a critical impact as critics like me really wanted it to. Despite this ambitious take on sci-fi, despite the landmark direction, at the Oscars, Children of Men gets a couple tech noms, loses them, and disappears. But a few years later, it pops up as number 13 on a giant pull of the best films of the millennium. 
I had it in my top 10. And now Children of Men has survived to be your pick for one of the best films that we have yet to cover. So what was on the radio that Christmas week of 2006? A Beyonce ballad that could not disagree more with the premise of the film. It is Beyonce and Irreplaceable. She's all like, I got another man in a minute. Doesn't matter who you murder. There's going to be more men who get born and they're going to date me. Now that that was going to be the original song for the movie, right? Over the soundtrack. (laughs) Now, Amy, I know some people might think that this movie is dark, but to me, this just feels like a great road trip movie. You know, all the funny (laughs) things that happen on a road trip, like you get attacked, you uh, give birth, you run away and eventually die. Like a classic planes, trains, and automobiles kind of fun scenario, Midnight Run-esque. I think it's up there with, uh, you know, like Euro Trip or uh, Rain Man, <laughs> maybe uh, National Lampoon's Family Vacation. I'm getting those kind of vibes. Just a little, little darker, but uh... I mean, I was gonna rag on that, but actually, this is a movie where one of the most tragic deaths comes with the fatal line, "Pull my finger." When did they leave? Pull my finger. Pull my finger. <laughs> I'll do it. By the way, that moment, I have to say, Michael Caine is fantastic in this movie. He is absolutely amazing. Did you know that the inspiration for his character was John Lennon? I did not know that. But once you say that and you look at his glasses and you look at his hair, it kind of makes sense. Quaron really liked this idea of um, idealist and told Michael Caine to kind of lean into that a little bit. They sound alike, though even that repetition of Amigo, it it has a certain John Lennon flavor to it. Not that John Lennon was saying Amigo, but that kind of way that he spoke and that casualness. There's a a playfulness to that character that just really made that that performance pop for me. Oh, the Amigo is interesting. I had this theory that the reason that he keeps saying Amigo and that Julianne Moore, that her character says uh, Italian words all the time, she's like, Andiamo, was like this low-key beatnik revolutionary way of saying we love people from other countries and we disagree with like locking them all out of England. I thought it was kind of like a low key, like signal boost of, you know, being like, I'm cool and I'm with it. But on that note, I really adore this Michael Caine character because it hits on some of the things that just like, I want more of in sci-fi, which is characters who feel like actual people who walked on the earth with with us at some point still have a sense of humor are dealing with this apocalyptic version of reality in ways where they're not all acting like all blank face and, oh, I don't know, I'm cold and I'm strange. And he even gets the joke right that we were talking about when we did that show a couple of weeks ago um, with Tani and PFT about Star Trek, where I was like, yeah. my one issue with the Star Trek movie is that we always imagine that people of the future are still listening to music from the 1950s. The great joke here is where Michael Caine is like, let's listen to something a little bit zen. 
And the moment goes like this. You okay, Mika? Yeah, my, um, my ears are still ringing from earlier. Ah, oh, well, a little Zen music won't bother you then, will it? That's it. That's what I've been wanting in my sci-fi. An acknowledgement that the people of the future listen to the music of today. That That's, you know, Aphex Twin, of course. You know, when Human Giant hosted the 24-hour marathon on MTV, we got to pick whatever video we wanted to <gasps> air in Times Square. Did you and pick we one picked, of my favorite videos of all time? We picked an Aphex Twin video. It's the one in the forest, like the black and white one where they're running around. <gasps> oh, I was hoping you'd say Window Licker, the one where he's like a bikini babe. All I want to know, though, is that it was an Apex Twin song that helped your ear styles die a little bit. You know that ringing in your ears? That e? That's the sound of the ear cells dying, like their swan song. Once it's gone, you'll never hear that frequency again. Enjoy it while it lasts. By the way, that's not true, I heard. Scientists are like, no, when you hear ringing, it's not your ear cells dying. Okay, good. Because that got me kind of freaked out when I heard that. I was like, is that true? Oh, no. Um, I'll tell you that I now remember the video was rubber. It was a Chris Cunningham video from a long time ago, uh, which is equally uh, disturbing and weird uh, to play in Times Square. And I loved watching the faces of people as they saw that on the Jumbotron. Um, But music (laughs) does play a big part in this movie. The imagery from Pink Floyd, the floating pig in the sky, which, by the way, in the setting of the film, that would be the 50th anniversary of that Pink Floyd album uh, with the pig in the sky. But I also thought in the movie it's more of a a protest. It's kind of like the idea that the leaders are pigs, right? Oh, I thought it was more like the leaders just love Pink Floyd and can buy whatever they want. They wanted that pig. Because I, I think that the setting of where that art meeting takes place with like his cousin it is, the whole reason yes. he gets roped into this in the first place because his cousin is powerful and his cousin has the ability to get the travel papers for for Key. I just thought his cousin was like like a planet Hollywood of the future, just collecting everything he loves. Do you think that like, so he, like he kind of got like a standee from a movie theater. He's like, I'll get Michelangelo's David and I'll get uh, the Pink Floyd uh, balloon from their last concert and put it up there. You cannot tell me that there are not people alive on this earth who would do that if they could, right? I mean, (laughs) one actually like weird thing though is like that character, the cousin character, like in the book, he was actually the main other character of the book. That like P.D. James wrote the book and it was all all about how that guy, his cousin, was the one who had all of the power. And so it's like the book is really about bringing down that man in particular. And so she that's why that's why Quaron thought it sounded like a story of elites versus elites, because it was Uh, more about taking down the system. And I think here he doesn't believe you can take down the system. So he didn't even want to bother with like that element of it. And yet P.D. James loves this adaptation. She has nothing to do in being involved in how it came together, but really is happy to be associated with it. Because I do think from everything that I've seen, it really does capture the vibe of the book. I mean, though, he does Quaron blow her up in the very first scene. You know, like in that coffee shop scene where he yeah. like goes in and everybody's talking about Diego yeah. and blah, 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 blah. And they're watching the news. There's like a woman with silver hair holding a dog at the very front. And that is PG James. He gave oh. her the cameo. So she gets blown up in the very first scene. <laughs> Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, 
Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. I just want to go back to the pig because this is probably where we're going to exist a lot in this conversation. Like the pig in Pink Floyd represents to me what I think Pink Floyd was always talking about, which is like warning about society's collapse because of capitalistic greed. There's a great Black Mirror episode, one of the first ones, where they make like the prime minister fuck a pig live oh, on yeah. camera. Right? And then it turned out that that was actually true. That the prime minister had gone to a boys' school where I think he had to sleep with an animal. Oh, my god! That I think they're like, what is Eaton? I don't want to slur, slur people from Eaton. Maybe it's not Eaton, but one of those schools Let me see. I'm, I'll has a whole tradition of of that. So if, maybe that was the very first example of Black Mirror becoming real. And now there's just been like a dozen. So many. I mean, that I will say that uh, Piggate, what you're talking about there, is, uh, is a story, a claim that David Cameron inserted his penis and or testicles into a dead pig's mouth as a part of an initiation ceremony for the uh, Piers Gaveston Society at Oxford. Oxford. Uh, Sorry, yes. Oxford. Yeah. An anonymous member of parliament said that that might have been true, but the prime minister never even dignified that anecdote with a uh, response. Well, uh, how do you dignify it in any way? You can't. I'm going <laughs> to believe that it's true because A, I can, and he can't stop me. But also... Man, we really just let people from like the same 10 schools run the planet. We really have to rethink this. I, I think you're right. Uh, I will say that somebody <laughs> did say there was a picture, but that picture was never found. And then the person who took the picture was found somewhere in the Thames. <laughs> but, you know, this idea that what is society when there is nothing else to live for? This movie is very dark. I understand why this doesn't connect when it first comes out. We are coming out of an anxiety and xenophobia that we've had after 9-11, you know, and and what this movie pushes forward is a lot of issues that we still avoid today, which is economic depression, inequality, anti-immigrant hysteria, ecological decay. These are the things that we don't want to talk about, right? And we have a hero in this movie who never uses a gun, which is really interesting. In a movie that is incredibly violent, he never picks up a gun. And so it has all the trappings of something that feels like it could be an action movie, but it really isn't. It is a full sci-fi film about society on collapse. You know, we are on the bridge of extinction and how do we act and what do we do and why do we fight? It's not about elites as much as maybe the individual over the group. I mean, there, there's something really interesting. Whenever we find people in this movie 
that are living well, with the exception of, of course, Michael Caine and his wife, they seem like former communists. Like we're in that one house towards the end of the film. Like it seems like communists were able to to save themselves in this world. Like they were able to live within it, which I thought was an interesting point of view. Oh, that is interesting. Like our, you mean like our images of comfort, many of them are people living together, you know, figuring out how to be compounds. Like, cause we get a couple glimpses of houses. Like we see that Theo Farron lives alone. Seems pretty depressing. The television is always showing him commercials about pills to take to end his own life. And then there's Jasper's house, Michael Caine's house, which looks like the closest thing to heaven. But and then there's also just the different compounds of like where the fishes meet and then where like the giant towering apartment complex that we see at the end, the sort of like hovel where we get to meet Marichka, you know, who's kind of like helping them around. I mean, it's strange, right? Like to me, what I feel like the arc of this movie is, is something that hits home as somebody who was alive through like the 90s, 2000s, protesting the different Iraq wars. Well, being aware of the first one and then actively protesting the second one and then going through periods of like disillusionment when you realize that like the protests of the early 2000s didn't matter at all. And then moments of hope, you know, this movie comes out before like Obama was inaugurated and I was definitely a person who was like, oh good, now we can be hopeful about the world again. And then going through new periods of like disillusionment and like figuring out what to do, like that arc of what, can you believe in a better world or not? You know, and we meet Clive when he's at the bottom of that arc. We know that this character had been a revolutionary, had been an optimist, had been a fighter and put that aside, you know, and had settled into a life of, I can't care. I had settled into a life where like kind of to, to live a comfortable life in this movie means you don't care. I mean, it's exactly what his rich cousin who collects pig balloons even tells him right here. You kill me. A hundred years from now, there won't be one sad fuck to look at any of this. What keeps you going? You know what it is, Theo? I just don't think about it. And so to me, this is a movie about figuring out that some part of you does want to fight for a better world again. Because the world will convince you that there's no point. Well, yeah, and I think it it goes to this idea, I believe it was Naomi Klein who talked about this idea of, like, disaster capitalism, Right? That this is capitalism that happens after a massive event, you know, war, famine, national disasters. As as the nation is kind of reeling, governments try to protect people. And as they protect people, uh, it becomes this world where people are more trapped. I think this movie, and these are a lot of terms I don't often use, kind of takes like neoliberalism to its conclusion, right? It's like we want to protect everybody. And we start to not look at the way that people are being treated because as long as we're safe, we're okay. I mean, there's literally horror happening in the street. You know, explosions are going on. He's still going to work. There's commercials on TV for a drug where you can kill yourself, but people are still buying cigarettes that are extra filtered, right? It's 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 this idea of you will be safe or you you stop to care about everybody else. Yeah, that like our hero in this movie is somebody who walks right by people in cages constantly and doesn't yeah. doesn't even look at them, like in this scene. And I mean, 
oh, the darkest part of me relates to that. We live in a city where there's a really big problem with housing for people. And like, well, it's the way it, that you look through LA. You yeah, you, to you live drive here. through. Yeah, and, it breaks and, you to live in a lot of places. And I think this idea, you know, these images that we see, Abu Ghraib, right? There's images mm-hmm. in this movie that are recalling that, you know, this yeah, idea. Which had just of, really come out even. Yeah. And, you know, when you see the midwife taken off the bus when she sacrifices herself in that moment, you know, you're hearing this song underneath. And that song is actually the song that they used in Nazi Germany, you know, as people were heading into the camps, like this idea, like that song of like work will set you free like this, you know, you can become so desensitized. I think since we've just all lived through something major like this, you know, this idea of like a global shutdown on some level you can see these parallels a lot clearer. You can see how things start to ramp themselves up, you know, how people treat others as them. And it's always there. But the fear of others is something that obviously Trump brought very much into office. You know, it's the reason why I have my grandmother calling me and asking if I can see immigrants running through my backyard because she's watching Fox News who's pushing this idea. And it's like, we just remove ourselves from thinking, feeling, and caring. It's hard to be a person who cares all the time. Living in cities, you see things at least every week and a lot, often a lot more than that. Where like, if you felt everything deeply to your core, I don't know how any of us could keep going to work. You know what I mean? Right. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know how you stay alive. And it's weird to to know that this movie comes out. And now we are very aware that we also live in a government that puts refugees in cages. And we've all seen the pictures. And what do you do about it? Like, what do you, like, what yeah. am I, what have I actually specifically done besides vote and donate? That isn't like theoretical, you know, Get, like helping gather supplies. But it's like, that's still very theoretical. And like, what this movie seems to be asking is like, if something like, like, like the most famous story of all time, if something like baby Jesus happened today, you know, if there was a refugee child happening in a, in an empire where people were poor and having to move around and being persecuted, would anybody who claims to have dedicated their entire life to Jesus even recognize that this was happening? Like what side of the story are we on? You know, what if we actually are on the wrong side of the story? I mean, even in this movie over and over again, when the child is revealed a character will say this. Please help me. Jesus Christ. In our minds, the way that we see the end of the world, it's an alien ship hovering over the White House or the Eiffel Tower. It's a nuclear explosion. But what about the end of society that doesn't go out with a bang, just gradually falls apart? You know, this idea that we are going out with a whimper. It just slowly deteriorates and we have the best intentions, but nothing is reversing its course. I mean, some people even say, I, in my research, I found this writer, a conservative writer, Francis Fukuyama, who coined this term called the end of history, saying that the triumph of capitalism over communism with the fall of the Berlin Wall is the final form of humanity, this post-history. The cards have been dealt, and now we're just waiting for everything to end. Now, that's a super dark idea. This idea of the individual over the society is something that's getting more and more prevalent in the years since then, too. And look, the United States was always a capitalist country. It's not, you know, it wasn't like we were 
a communist country and change. But you can see how that infestation into other countries are rapidly degrading the culture that they live in or or the literal surroundings that they live in. No, you're right. And to realize that these questions are sort of global. I mean, yes, you and I lived through the 90s. I remember very much people saying it was like the end of history. That's really the conversation that I think about whenever I think about that movie, American Beauty. You know, that that movie is supposed to represent the end of history where we didn't have any more problems in earth thanks to capitalism, except for what are we going to do about like our inner struggle? Are we ever going to find peace and happiness and contentment now that we're all well-fed and live in good houses and have couches and are going to college with our kids? You know, all of that. And like really people taking it seriously that that was what our future was going to be was just too, too comfortable. (laughs) And like, honestly, I feel like so much of my soul is still shaped by the fact that like I was a young teenager during those years. And that's what I thought the future was going to be because that's what everybody told me it was. And then everything that's happened since has been like, whoa, okay, okay. And it's fascinating because in interviews then, Quran will hear from people like, wow, you made children men. It was so clairvoyant about everything that's happening. And he keeps trying to make the point over and over again. I'm not psychic. You could see this if you were looking harder. Uh, people were warning about that yeah. for decades now. Yeah, but very few people were listening. Yeah, yeah but it was, not, it was not a topic trend, I guess. Yes. And uh, the... the uh, what is amazing is that now everybody, even people sending children of men, oh, look at that. Mm-hmm. I, you yeah. know, I was just, these people were talking about that like two decades ago, and now it's happening. They, all of these things that we're living, mm-hmm. were compl- it was completely predicted two decades ago. Yep. Immigration, yep. Uh, uh, environment, mm-hmm. uh, this whole thing of the, autori- the populism and authoritarian, authoritarian states. I mean, this is, Reality, really, no, no, it is no, there are no, no news. I do believe that people don't want to look at that. These are the harsher, scarier things. It's much easier to fight aliens or a, a bad guy, you know, with a bomb, you know. And we talked about it earlier when you said, I, what I like about this is that Michael Caine's character is funny and interesting. Yeah, you can live in the dark future and still be like, all right, well, have some bean sprouts and let's get high. Yeah, but what I like about it is it's not a movie that lives in explaining, oh my God, you see what's going on around us. There, There's not a better opening scene to a film like this than the casualness of the way that Clive Owen reacts to that bomb. That bomb goes off and kills everyone in that coffee shop. That coffee shop is loaded with people, P.D. James included, and just goes on with his day. Yeah, and then he like lies to his boss later and he's like i want to get off work and he doesn't say because i just narrowly survived a bombing he makes up a lie that he's sad about baby diego mr griffiths i seem to be uh more affected by baby diego's death than i realize so if you wouldn't mind i'd appreciate it if i could finish my day's work at home I mean, how funny is that? And I love that introduction to our character. We're like three minutes into the movie and we're like, oh, so he's just a liar who doesn't care about baby Diego, but he'll use the sadness to get out of it. But also what he's leaving out is important. He's leaving out that he just almost got blown up. Right. But does it even affect him on that level? You know, there's something here where this movie doesn't live in exposition. It doesn't tell you why. It shows you a lot of things. Like you you talked about, American Beauty, and I just want to go back to that for one second. There's something really interesting in American Beauty. Right before um, Kevin Spacey meets his demise, right? There's a, a scene with an orange. And this movie shares that. Oranges are a precursor of 
bad things are going to happen in this movie. Whenever someone pulls out an orange, something bad happens in the car chase. Oh, like chase, The Godfather. Yes, like The Godfather as well. Like the orange, what does the orange represent? Because uh, I'm allergic this, to oranges, so bring it on. <laughs> but I do like this idea of the orange as this precursor to danger. You know, the impending doom. And I tried to do a little bit of research about that, like to be like, well, what what does that actually mean? Is there something in history about an orange? But I couldn't find anything. Oh, there's an orange in the room with the kind of like settled in refugees in the camp. Yes. Too, where they carve it into like a swan. I also think there's something going on here too, which is, yes, this is a movie. It's a beautiful movie. The cinematography is unbelievable, but it's a movie that's shot like a doc. It takes away the glossiness of a movie, right? It like, And especially these long shots. We talk about this idea of like, when is a long shot important? When does it just to showcase things? This movie has these one take moments that are each time breathtaking, but they're not to be showy. I think they're to keep you in the mindset of our character. It's, it's chaos. It's utter chaos when those moments happen. We live in these moments. And, and I know that a Quran took an inspiration from this Italian film, uh, Italian like Algerian neorealism film called The Battle of Algiers, right? It puts you in war. We and should I should cover that, that sometime because I think somebody, one of our guests brought that up as a top three. Also that movie that just came out. Um, 1917? 1917, yeah. exactly. Like this idea of like, do you feel it more when you're in it? We all love a war movie, or that at least is the traditional idea that like, you know, in the 50s and 60s, we wanted to see a war movie. But what is the true war movie? What are the horrors of this? And I think, you know, Nolan did it with, uh, you know, one of his last films as well. Like you're in it. Is it this panic fire when you're seeing bullets fly and you're seeing people die and narrowly escaping like those moments in this movie are are so much more chilling, you know, uh, because you see how random it is. I think that that is truly what is so scary here. Why is he alive? Why is Julianne Moore killed? It's just absolutely not fair and 100% random. Like, he's not a superhero. I love that moment when Clive Owen breaks down. That's also in a, in a, in a, a I don't want to call it a wonder because in that moment, it's just a shot that just plays out in one take. And I think that we we were talking a little bit about that in There Will Be Blood as well. But this, you get to live with him and see him break down. Like he does have these feelings, like, but he can't even show them to anybody. And like, that's probably the most real moment that we get of him in that moment, just seeing him utterly collapse and then re-steal himself to go back into the world and continue this insane day. Yeah. I mean, I think that his character is kind of in like a lovely conversation with a movie that came out the year before the, the Spielberg war of the worlds one, mm. you know, with Tom Cruise, I feel because yeah. those lead characters are really, really similar. They're both kind of like apathetic, self-interested guys in a lot of ways. Like, why would I stick my neck out? Why would I do this? Not like arch villains, not like I'm a jerk, but just like, Oh, I don't know. I've got better things to do. And and neither one of them go through these worlds where terror is happening that's bigger than them and terror is happening that they have zero control over. You know, War of the Worlds, aliens are here and there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. You know, it, there's ash flying from the sky and everything's gray. And it, like this one, I think, are both attempts to grapple with post-war and terror, post-9-11, post this idea of like something happening that we couldn't do anything about. And in both of them, we have these characters who don't, 
fight because you can't fight that. It's about like something you can't fight. All you can do is escape. You can barely even run. Like, I mean, here he's in flip-flops. He can't even run. He has like one time where he clocks in the, the cop with a battery here. But other than that, he's not an action hero, as you pointed out. It's it's like, it's specifically the opposite of that. It's about accepting the randomness of living in a world where you're not special, but can you do the best you can? Let me ask you, Amy, is this a trope of a movie to make you feel sympathetic for the main character They don't have shoes that fit or they're barefoot. In this movie, Clive Owen, we see him in flip-flops. I assume he's running around in flip-flops. I wish the sound design was just a little bit better to hear that throughout the whole entire movie because they're shitty flip-flops. You know, obviously in Die Hard, Bruce Willis cuts up his feet and we feel for him even more. Like, if you're not already in the shoes of these characters, is there anything worse that you can imagine than being barefoot in war or barefoot in a moment of stress. I know I think about it on Survivor when I see these people soaking wet and they're in soaking wet shoes for days in and days out. I'm just like, being barefoot makes everything worse. You know what's so funny though is I'm realizing this came out like in that period where everybody wore flip-flops all the time. Do you remember this very, very strange I moment? I don't. Where I was in New York. No one was wearing flip-flops in New York. Really? I, okay. I think it was the year before this where like, People lost their minds because like a college women's sports team went to the White House and they all got their photo taken with President Bush and the women were all wearing flip flops for like this formal occasion. And I remember very specifically the Internet losing its mind about young people these days who wear flip flops instead of real shoes. <laughs> I Maybe maybe Koran is also team wear some real shoes or at least feel feel the need to wear real shoes. But by not giving him those shoes. I love it because like, A, it gets this idea of this immediacy. He doesn't even have time to go get his shoes because they have to get out of this house right now. B, he's like stumbling and hurting himself. As soon as he smashes Sid with the battery, he trips and scratches and hurts himself. And then C, you actually get the emotional moment when one of the guys in like that last home that they're in gives him shoes. You know, you get to see him be given shoes and it allows other people to do something kind for him. And it means so much. I mean, if he was just like, I don't know, I'm an action hero in boots. Like, I just sort of always seem to be like every action hero kind of is. It wouldn't mean anything. Maybe there is just something where we can all imagine what it is to have a hurt foot. Not everyone can imagine what it is to get punched in the face or punched in the gut. You know, we even see it in John Wick. I mean. Oh, hey, I'll try to do it to you right now. Paul, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a swimming pool and my friend grabbed me and threw me in and my flip flop got caught on the lip of the pool and I scraped away like a nickel sized part of the skin Oof. on the ball of my foot and it still hurts and I could still barely wear shoes. Are you cringing? Oh. Are you cringing? Because it is true. I am. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that the idea of how much it hurts when you stub your toe and I know it's silly to compare like a stub, but that pain and the way that you react when your toe is messed up or you jam it. It's more visceral than anything else. I, I think that's why you see it in dozens and dozens of movies and comedy films and everything. It's like it it sets a tone where you are going to be hobbled. You can't get to the next place because, you know, you see Clive Owen walking with a limp. I mean, he's also, uh, I think, shot out at that point, too. So maybe in the grand scheme of things, survival all comes down to good footwear. I mean, I know they say that on alone. <laughs> Maybe the feet thing also makes him a little bit more the the Joseph in the Mary and Joseph pilgrimage. Oh, I like that. Because, I mean, I don't think, did Mary and Joseph ever bone? I mean, I know they didn't bone before Jesus, but, like, 
Did they did they not bone after Jesus? Were they also sort of just like a non sexual partnership yeah. traveling together? Like like I, we got to get a Bible historian on here. Yeah, we probably should <laughs> someday. But they probably wore sandals. I'm guessing not for uh, yeah, but sandals. I'm sure there's a lot of rocks out there. Maybe uh, random yeah. nails from crucifixions yeah. gone wrong. Um, More like Tevas, I guess. <laughs> Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. You know, I thought the interesting thing about this movie as well, we talked about how you just are thrust into it, but the general conceit of this film and the overwhelming despair really comes from the idea of infertility. What if we lived in a world in which no new children were being born? What does new life do for our society in some way? Like, it softens us. There's that moment where they walk through with the baby. And I think that people are, A, amazed that there is a baby after 18 years, but also it makes us softer. It, 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 we are, for the most part, most people are kind around children. And in the original book, the infertility was about the men not producing any more sperm. And here, it's the women not being fertile. And I wanted to talk about how they don't, describe how it happened or why it happened, but how they give you these context clues. And it isn't about a big bad. It is about environmentalism. You know, we're talking about capitalism, the idea of factories and pollution. When you look at those cows on fire, cows are burning and you see uh, the, the sludge coming out of the water and you see the dark gray skies, right? This idea, all these ideas are about the death of the planet. and Cows are the givers of milk, right? And and I think you could make a, a, a line to mothers give milk and they help their children survive. And, and yeah. these cows are dying. And the first time we see the pregnant belly of Key is in this moment where she's surrounded by cows. Yeah, and talking you know, about how they, they cut off cows' nipples to fit the machines instead of making the machines fit the cows' nipples. It, it really is an interesting idea. Like society- Has been bending uh, nature to itself. And right. nature and is like, I will not be bent anymore. They, Yeah, nature strikes back. People are living in a poisoned world and they are becoming poisoned and stopping them from producing it. They are, they are becoming extinct because of what they did. And I think that there's a little moment when they go to the school and you see like in the school playground, there's a dinosaur within the weeds. Like the school's being taken over by the earth. You know, it, it, it's going yeah. back to nature and there's a why dinosaur. Why would they keep it clean? What would they do? They yeah. don't, they're not using it. 
And it's Which is a, happening idea like, now. We're having schools in this country that are like going abandoned in small areas. Yeah, this idea that like we are becoming extinct, but not because of, and I think this is the thing. We want to look at one person. Trump is bad. This person is wrong, right? It's easy to make it, but there's so much more behind the scenes. We're going through a similar thing, not on a grand scale, but with the AMPTP work stoppage here in Hollywood with writers and actors on strike, it's because corporations are not willing to share profit. They would rather, as one of the quotes in uh, Deadline said, make people lose their house and their apartments so they'll be hungry to fight for scraps. That idea is something that we're seeing, whether it's in nursing, whether it's in uh, the the person who will do your nails is now replaced by a machine at Target or, you know, UPS drivers, the eventual automation of Uber, like all these things are coming to fruition. The fact that people can't afford to raise children as easily anymore. And so the birth rates are dropping and everybody's like, why don't women want to have babies as much anymore and it's like because it's harder to support them and yourself you know because the economy is is rigged against parents i think in a lot of ways the world is infertile the world everything about it like yes women are infertile yes the like the fields are like everything is dying because of capitalism right this idea of the rich get richer and the rich can take this not even the spoils of war like they they just took that you know they took michelangelo's david and put it in the house because oh we can get it we can get that well yeah and what we see in it is that they're just being like delusional at the same time like here's the problem but they're not fixing it instead they're just sort of lying about what the problem is all the time or they're not going to the root of it i mean even in the way that they're like turning this negative energy into walling away refugees, they're like two-faced even in how they talk about it right here. We support you. Don't become terrorists. Meanwhile, we're clearly not supporting you for anybody with eyes, anybody seeing how we're getting treated. The people just robbed him of his watch. You know, they're being screamed at constantly. And we're we're doing all of these things, but none of them are actually helpful. Not all of them are doing nothing but making it worse. Well, we're profit. They're they're you're watching a company like profit on making you kill yourself, right? And it like that is the evolution on some level, or maybe a larger theme of like what cigarettes are doing. I, I love the fact that he's living in this place. And when you look at the cigarettes in the film, they're ultra filtered. I, I mentioned that earlier, like the idea that there's a bigger filter. So people go, oh, he doesn't finish a cigarette. There's probably only two puffs in those cigarettes because there's maybe it's a tobacco shortage or whatever it is. The filters have gotten longer, but they're still selling them. And, you know, we're living in this world that they're just still selling you these things. I want to say that um, just talking about this idea of like the country and the world being a wasteland, you know, when Theo and Key goes to Michael Caine's house, Jasper's house, and he says, Shanti, 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 which is in the final line of T.S. Eliot's poem, Wasteland, which also has these prominent themes of infertility. Like I, 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 what I love about this and thinking about this more and more is like, Yes, he didn't read the book, but in a way he was able to capture, I think, the spirit of the book by by pulling in so much. Like it it's bigger than the book. It's not just why the last man, which I love. I didn't see the adaptation on TV, but I, I love the book. Like, you know, only one man left on earth. What will society be if 
there's nothing left to live for. That that to me is the scariest question you can ask about the future. What what is worth living for? If there are no jobs, there's no wealth, there's no success. It's well, just yeah. survival. And, and what's fascinating is in the book, one of the things that they develop out is this idea of what is it like to be a member of that very last generation of kids. And they and the PD James comes up with something that's actually something really similar to what kind of Clockwork Orange thought. You know, that this last young generation is going to just be crazy because they have nothing to live for. So why would they bother caring at all? And we don't see a ton of examples about them. Like we know that Diego is one of them. And what's he doing? He's like clubbing and getting into fights with people. Yeah. We see that like the his wealthy cousin has a kid who is part of this generation and he's got some scars on his face. He's got, you know, the little tiny scribbly tattoos all over the kind that adults are always like, you're going to regret those when you get older. And here the kids are like, don't care, checked out. I'm just biding my time. Like there's nothing for me to do in this world. And what I love about it too is like we even get glimpses of this in the character of Key who is so funny. And if you're going to make this character be, you know, a merry figure, like a the, the last pregnant person on earth, you could have gone saintly or you could go dull. You could go beatific. You could go a lot of directions with it. And this movie goes a very different one. She's just funny as hell. She's so funny. She's low-key checked out. She's kind of angry. We get a glimpse here where she's, you know, talking about the father of this child that she's probably been having to sell her body to support herself for a long time. How many months? It. It takes nine months. I know. Who's the father? We fed. I'm a virgin. Sorry? <laughs> Child, be wicked, eh? Yeah, it would. <laughs> Fuck knows. I don't know most of the wankers' names. <laughs> you know, when I started puking, thought I'd catch the pest. But then my belly started getting big. Nobody ever told me these things. I'd never seen a pregnant woman before. But I knew. I felt like a freak. I didn't tell nobody. I thought about the quietest thing. Supposed to be suave. Pretty music and all that. Then the baby kicked. I feel it. Little bastard was alive and I feel it and me too. I am alive. And it's just really matter of fact about it. You know, this is also what the younger generation is going through. And I love that she has so much personality, which she's like, I'm going to name my kid some random ass name. I'm going to call my kid Bazooka. I'm going to call her Bazooka. Bazooka? You don't like it? I was getting used to Froly. Froly's a man's name. <laughs> what is he thinking? Giving you a boy's name. Again. <laughs> she has so much spirit, it just so much wit, and she's so with it, and she's not this victim, and she's not being like dragged around or anything like that. But she is being lied to by the people who are above her. Like to me, once you know the whole plot of the story, you know, once you've kind of been through it the whole time, the idea that the fishes are trying to control her to keep the baby under their control so they can use it to help with like propaganda for the uprising, dot, dot, dot. I can't quite connect it completely, all the dots of their plans. But when you know that this is Chiwetel Ejiofor's kind of like end game here, controlling her and not letting her choose what she wants to do, which is get out, go to the island, get away from everything, it becomes more chilling that he kind of uses the words of of choice and your safety that we hear as young women today. Like in that scene, he's like, this is your choice. It's a safe place for you to have your child. Then when you and the baby are well enough, we will find a way to get you to the human project. I promise you. It could take months to get I back in touch you. with them again. 
This is true. We have to take it under consideration. Key, this is your decision. What do you think? I think you need proper care. Oh, brilliant. She has proper What the fuck does he know? Shit. Key. Key, this is your choice. I have my baby here. Then you get me to the human project. And it's not. It's absolutely not. It's absolutely not. And whenever I hear, like, people who aren't pregnant talking about why they care about a woman's rights to choose and, oh, we we just want you to be safe, honey. It does scare me because it sounds a little bit like being lied to like this. With all that being said, I will say I do think the movie is still hopeful. I think the movie ends on this moment of not fatality, but maybe a new beginning. And I think that is incredibly hard to pull off when you're dealing with the themes that we're just talking about. Because at the core of it, you're right. Chuitel wants to use her as a pawn. But I believe that Julianne Moore has the right idea. Like Julianne Moore has this interesting tattoo. It's a bird tattoo. Every time you see Julianne Moore, you hear birds in the background, like in that first scene especially. And where is she shot? In her bird tattoo. Um, And I love that idea of the bird singing, communicating out in the distance. It's like no matter what, like pushing forward, getting your voice out there, signaling to other people. I mean, that's what I think she represents. And the fact that that's the way that she dies, I do believe there is something there about what does having a voice mean and why is it still important. And in all of this devastation, you can still hear a bird in the background. Like there is still hope. There are good people. There are people who can still affect change. And I think that when you and I, we talk about this off air, on air, the idea like, well, what else can I do? I don't know if I can affect change. And maybe you can't affect change in very clean, clear ways where you see like, oh my gosh, I did this and and this happened. But you can continue to use your voice. And maybe on that one day where you're using your voice, you open it, you find something else. And that, you know, it's, I think the idea is just continue to use your voice, continue to donate, continue to speak up, continue to look out. I mean, it does make me laugh that she has that bird tattoo and this movie comes out the same year as Twitter. And what we just really did is we tweeted about stuff wow. for a really long time and then I'll quit. But, you know, she also is like, I think in this movie as she becomes a, a, a martyr for us, not we don't really see her like rise as a martyr for anybody else because everything is moving so fast here. But she's a martyr for us. And yet, you know, just like a pull my finger death, she's written to be a human being in a way that I think is so smart. The moments before she dies, she's not mouthing off about her dreams of the revolution. She's like flirting with her ex-husband. They're playing their like little ping pong game back and forth in this scene. Oh, fuck off. you got to be kidding. You know how many people I've tried I this with? Know. You'll be happy to know out of the hundreds, hundreds. you are still the I'm only not doing one. It. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you the are. car's moving yes, too much. Yes, you are. Mm-hmm. You are, right? <laughs> <laughs> <Hilarious>. <laughs> no, wait, wait. Okay. <laughs> do it again, do it again. <laughs> Julian, that's disgusting. <laughs> Look out. Jesus. Go, go, Fuck. go. We're going to make it. Come on, we're going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. Just 
an astounding moment. I think that ping pong has to be CG. I don't know how that ping pong would not be CG. I like imagining the idea that they're doing a shot where they have to also nail this ping pong ball trick. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, yeah, that shot, like, I think they have to because unless they're really palming it, and if they're palming it, like Mission Impossible uh, 7 when Tom Cruise does his magic key trick. That was so weird. There's a great podcast called Light the Fuse podcast. Hi, uh, guys at Light the Fuse podcast. We love them. They uh, they do a great job of kind of breaking down that scene but uh, with Tom Cruise. But what I will say is all that stuff serves to relax you, right? The movie does that a lot. It it pulls it down. It ratchets it up. Like it, it, the movie is constantly a roller coaster going up a hill and then going down. Up oh, yeah. release. You know, it's it's beautifully structured because there is life. There is a life force here. There's a life worth fighting for in a way. You yes. know, like joy and horror can coexist. And I mean, part of why Koran has said that he like wanted, you know, this take in particular and the other one, the other the giant one at the end of the refugee camp, which we should talk about. Like he wanted them to be one take is because not only do you get the joy and the horror in one scene, but he kind of believes that philosophically, when you are shooting violence in action and you're cutting between it, that like you can't help but subconsciously cut in a way that makes violence look cool. You know, like you're choosing the best angle of how the gun fires. You're choosing the best angle of how a bullet goes into a human body. And if you are shooting in editing it in assembling all of these takes of the best way that this could look then it looks cool then violence looks glamorous and cooler than he wants it to but if you shoot it in one take you know it's all part of a piece and like life and death happens inside of a frame if that makes sense yes i will tell you like just from a very it's a stupid connection but uh, that's all i'm about um i did a movie called blackballed as a paintball movie that i shot years ago um and for the paintball movie, we went out and played paintball. The first time I ever went out to go play paintball, I was so excited. It's going to be so much fun. And, you know, part of the thing with paintball is you have this giant container that holds all your paintballs. You shove it in the top and you can pretty much rapid fire paintballs like a machine gun. And I was so excited to play. And it was like, they blow the whistle and you start. And then basically you have a team of 15 people on one side and 15 people on the other side. And they're just firing. And I hid against a wall, you know, and there was never a moment for me to escape out because you're just hearing this explosion, explosion. And it's, I'm not going to get hurt. It's paintballs, whatever. But the fear of that, the the sound of that, like, you know, we, we look at violence, war movies, all the cowboy movies, action movies as like, this is fun. Like, this is like where you can, you can dodge everything. And Eddie Murphy had this great joke in Delirious where it was like, he just wanted to see a movie where someone like gets hit like, ah! oh God, you shot me. Oh God. Like he's like really <laughs> like in pain. People are like, ah, go on without me. You know, it's like, no, like you, like, you know, and I think that that's what this movie does. It just shows you that the fear of that moment, the scare, it's fucking scary. And it's interesting. Cause like he was saying that he wanted in that Julianne Moore scene for blood to get on the camera lens, you know, for there to be a little bit of splatter on it. And they were having a really hard time figuring out even how to do it. Cause like part of the techniques of how that whole scene was shot is they had four people kind of in like a, almost like a hunting shanty on top mm-hmm. of the car. Okay. And then they had a hole through the roof of the car. They had a camera kind of sticking through the hole of the car into the interior of the car. And then the actors had kind of choreographed this whole thing out where they'd like raise their chair up to like give a line and then like lower the chair and the camera had to zoom around them. It absolutely mental. 
And so that was really difficult to accomplish. They couldn't really quite figure out exactly how to do it. But then in that big last gigantic scene where he's like running through the one that is just like, I don't even know how long it is. It's six minutes. The, the last one is yeah, six minutes and change. Yeah. Where, you know, he was saying that in that part where the camera, you know, goes inside the trailer and guns fire and then he like runs back out and then there has to be a giant explosion down the street because it was sort of broken up into little bits, but it was still done in sections of long running takes that they didn't have that many chances to do it. Well, I'll just let him explain. And there are so many elements. You have explosions, you have extras, you have stunts, you have tanks. So something's going to go out of sync. And it was all these cues were about when do you release the tank so arrives in the perfect moment and then explodes this entrance of this building in just the time that Clive Owen is about to enter the building. We prepped the shot like for 12 days and then we shot for two days, but only there was only one, one take that was complete. That was the last chance I had to do that scene because we were losing the location and the sun was, was fading and suddenly blood spilling into the lens. That was completely not designed. Actually, in the moment in which the blood is spilling to the lens, I yell cut, but there was an explosion, so nobody heard me. And I realized that if, if they had heard me and they have cut, I was not going to be able to shoot the scene. So I just let it go. And at the end of the scene, Clive Owen and, and Emmanuel Lubezki, cinematographer, they were so excited. And I said, yes, guys, but there was blood in the lens. And the two of them, they turned at me and said, but that was the miracle. And then I realized it was true. It, it, it was about embracing those accidents, embracing those things that I could have never designed originally. You know, the cinematography in this movie is absolutely amazing. As long as you're not seeing crew, I think anything can kind of work. And I don't want to take anything away from Chivo, who who shot the movie. I mean, it is, wow. I mean, it is unbelievable. But it also doesn't feel so choreographed that you couldn't have little unexpected things happen. Yeah. Right. Like it, like it actually when I watch this movie, I go, holy shit, this is David Leach. This is Walking Dead. So many things that are popular now, I think, have taken a page from this, you know, this idea of keeping your camera in an active position with your actors. It, it, it brings a level of fear and drama and tension and action to a place. I mean, this is. When you watch this movie, you see it set the tone for what we all are in. Yeah. There's actually a movie that people, I want to recommend to people if you haven't seen it. There's two, really. You could watch either one. I don't know if you have to watch both. If you want to watch the Japanese version, it's called Last Cut of the Dead. And if you want to watch the French one that just came out, it's oh, called yes. Final Cut. And it's I by- saw you writing about this. I yeah, actually yeah, yeah. saved it in. I saved a picture of it because I wanted to watch it. Oh, you got it. The, the French one that just came out is with uh, Michel Hanavicius, mm-hmm. the guy who did The Artist. Right. Yes. Which is so funny. But it is a movie about single takes. It opens with like a 30-minute single take. And I don't want to say anything else about it except it's a zombie comedy that opens with a 30-minute single take. And it goes on from there. But it is so much about the art of this and how to pull it off. Astounding. Astounding. You're going to start this movie and be like, why am I watching this? This is just kind of a shitty zombie comedy that is done in one take. And then it will unfold. I think that this, to me, is my favorite Koran movie by far. And I think it kind of... I feel like he was really hurt that it didn't do well, you know, and I I think, I mean, he just heard that it flopped and then never really looked into it, never really read reviews and never watched it again until recently. I think he's only watched it one other time since then. And that kind of makes me sad for him on this, on his behalf, because I think he put so much brain trust into this movie 
in a way that I don't think he's exactly done again. I think he believes a lot of what's in here. And I think he hasn't made a movie that talks about these beliefs in the same way. I think he kind of put it all here and set it aside. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I find this movie really special. And I love hearing his thoughts on how to even create something that feels this real. That he like talked about it, you know, in these terms. Like he said he wanted to be the anti-Blade Runner. Rule number one in the film is recognizability. We don't want to do Blade Runner. Actually, we, we talk about being the anti-Blade Runner in the sense of how we were approaching reality. And that was kind of difficult for the art department because I would say, I don't want inventiveness, I want reference. You know, it's uh, don't show me the great idea. Show me the reference in real life. And more important, I would like as much as possible references of iconography, contemporary iconography, that is already engraved in human consciousness. And the anti-ness, the lack of cool, that kind of scrubbing off the stuff that makes you go, oh, but maybe the future wouldn't be so bad if we had light-up umbrellas. I love that about yeah, it. There's I no like flying that he kind cars of... in this movie. There's nothing... Yeah. That's really interesting to me, that there's a commitment to, no, it's just the world that you live in. It just sucks more. Exactly. And Ryan Johnson did, I think, that, that really well, too, in Looper. But yeah, he was. they basically were like with the design team, we're going to take the future up from, you know, 2005, six to like 2010. And then we'll stop from what we imagine 2010 will be. And then everything after that will decay. So like the clothes that people are wearing are basically the clothes that we're sort of wearing now, the flip-flops, the girls wear to the White House. It'll be recognizable. And that way these people will feel closer to you. And I respect that about it a lot, you know, because it's yeah. so, you, you're, you can't help but be tempted to make it look cooler. Like, I mean, come on, if you can make any future, you can. It's neat to make it look cooler. But then, of course, Koran being Koran, like, takes things really far. And, like, in that opening bomb scene, you know, in the cafe one, the one where already all of this is happening. We're trying to get all the cars outside the cafe, right opposite the window. And it's very difficult with the crowd, the extras all crossing, the stunt people crossing, the tuk-tuks, keeping all the cars running, making sure everything gets to its position. So it's just... It's difficult with so many motor vehicles. The main thing as well for them to watch is what Clive Owen's doing. Everything's on his walk. As soon as he starts to turn and the camera says everything should be moving. And five seconds from that point, everything should be in place. The day of when they have to juggle 900 bazillion things and also the fact that like there had recently just been bombs going off in London. You know, 800 people had been hurt. 52 people have been killed. Weeks later, they're shooting this. Very, very tense for everybody. He like is looking at this street scene. And he's like, oh, no, all of these production cars we have outside are just way too new. We can't have this. And they're like, OK, OK, it's fine. We can use CG. We can destroy a couple in post. And he's like, no. And he just starts jumping on the cars and smashing the hoods and busting them down himself because he's like, this has to be exactly right. And whenever I hear stories like that about a director, I'm like, oh, I really respect you. And I'm scared. And I don't know if I'd want to work for you on one of your sets. And I feel that complicated mix of emotions of like, wow. Wow, that's real That's real fearless aggro clout. Maybe we need that. Maybe we don't. Maybe I don't need to think that every person who makes a movie I like is a good person. I don't know. It's very complicated. I feel very complicated about things like that. Maybe this movie is interesting or different than other things that he's done because of all the scriptwriters who came through it as well. All the influences that were able to weigh in and add to this voice. I mean, I obviously... I love Quentin Tarantino. I love the movies that he makes. I will also go to bat and say that I think Jackie Brown's one of the best Quentin Tarantino films, maybe simply because it was his 
take on other material. Obviously, he wrote it, but there there is something sometimes when you have another influence in that you can kind of bob and weave with. Like Quaron did a lot of writing to pull this all together, but there's a lot of different influences here. It almost had a wealth of great ideas mixed with his vision and what he wanted to do, and it became something really amazing. I, I I'm a big believer in uh, collaboration on all levels, so maybe I'm just I'm looking at it through that lens. Uh, but I do I'm always interested in that. Well, then I want to collaborate with you on something that sticks out to me about this vision of the future, because we're actually only four years away from 2027. Mm-hmm. Scary. The slang that Key uses that she keeps calling everything suave. I love that. I love her use of suave. Oh, that's suave. Oh, he's suave. Oh, you're suave. I think you and I should collaborate on, on a suave challenge. Okay. Making suave replace Probably the word sick. I think I say the word sick too much. Everything to me is like sick, sick, sick. The other day I was talking to somebody I barely know and I realized I said sick four times. And as I walked away, I was like, wow, Amy, you sound like an idiot. So let's get rid of sick at least three of the four times and replace it with suave. Can we do that? Okay. I mean, I'm I'm down. I'm here for you. You know, I mean. (laughs) We have four years to get there to the suave. All right. right, I'm I'm here. You got me. I'm. Uh, I like that. I mean, suave feels like it actually is in a world full of like bad. I always feel like that's the, my favorite part of movies, like how people, you know, speak in in these movies. And uh, suave actually feels the most right. Like that doesn't it doesn't feel like too much of a uh, a shitty version of fake slang. One thing I also love about this movie is that it uses animals as I would say special effects, kind of like how Labyrinth just put chickens everywhere. Mm-hmm. I love it when we was like, I don't know, here's some chickens. And it makes like the world feel more alive. Here there's like animals everywhere too, like deers and goats and stuff and kittens. And I have never, I cannot figure out actually two things. One, so animals can have babies, I guess. Like animals are like exempt from whatever is happening in, in right. the natural world, I guess. But also there's this whole runner here where like Clive Owen Every time Clive Owen meets an animal, the animal is like, I love you, Clive Owen. Like cats are climbing up his legs. Dogs really like him. He's got this spell on animals that goes a little bit unacknowledged. Hmm. I'm interested there because Clive Owen is the only person who risks his like, yes, he's doing it for money, but he does take the bait. You don't set him up like he's got a job, right? Yes, that money would be good, but he you find or you feel that he actually does care. He scrounges for those quarters in a way that I love as a character detail. And they're like, here's some bus fare. He doesn't have the dignity to be like, I don't want to take it. He's like, yes, I am that poor. I'll dig for quarters. Yeah. There is like great nobility, I think, too. And, you know, the midwife character who who is played by Pam Ferris, Miriam. Like, I love how she goes from just some random weird look lady in the backseat who seems a little bit annoying to like you see her bravery get revealed. Yes. And the same thing with Marichka. Like you don't know at all what to make about Marichka. All we're told from Sid is that she has a shitty little dog, you know, and, and she loves that dog. She loves that dog. And she never lets that dog leave. And the hilarious beat where Key is like, get her out of the room. And he's trying to get her out of the room, but the dog has to like leave the room too. And, and I love seeing who reveals themselves to have Layers and then just the randomness of like Miriam coming up with this idea of pretending she's like a religious nutcase in order to have the attention of the cops on the bus go to her. And it's strange. Like we get this glimpse of religion here. Like there's a conversation early on between Theo and Jasper about, you know, these these cliques of religion that are showing up. The repenters, the renouncers. Any girls? No. What about the one we had lunch with, Lauren? Lorna. That was ages ago. Oh, I like her. What happened? 
he uh, decided to renounce. Renouncers? Are those the ones that kneeled down for a month for salvation? No, they're the repenters. The renouncers flagellate themselves for the forgiveness of humanity. Oh, right. You're dating ain't what it used to be, is it, Amiga? <laughs> but then what Clive thinks of that saves the day is that he just starts, you know, not talking religion. He starts doing this. Oh, I said, what's wrong with you? I said, what's wrong with you? Saint Gabriel, help us. We Shut up! Brought you up. Out! Saint Gabriel, come to our aid in this hour. Get out! Come on, Piss. Piss. Kaka. Smell. God. You smell it yourself. You fucking people disgust me. Just all these various ways of stepping up. Some, you know, there's like, yeah. I wouldn't say yelling piss caca is any more noble than pretending to be religious and disappearing for the rest of the film. But just the the randomness you do to survive. But to me, it's also like it's viewed the same way. Like piss caca and religion are <laughs> are similar, right? It's, a, it's something that makes people put off, it puts off people. It's like, oh, this yeah. is disgusting. I mean, even that clip I played earlier of like the people in cages yelling that he just walks by, like right at the front, like what popped to me the first time I watched that scene is that, you know, one of the women in the cage is like an elderly woman who's yelling in German. And I immediately thought like, oh, you know, shades of Holocaust. Okay, I get where he's going. And then I was like, wait, what is she saying? And when I listened a little closer, I do not know en- enough German, but I figured out enough through like body language and the few words I know to be like, oh, that lady in the cage is also racist as hell. And she's like, how dare you put me in a cage with people who are black? Right. And like the layers of that, you're just like, oh my God. And that he got so specific, Claron did, about like casting the people in the cages. He was like, I want this percentage of people who are German and Algerian. And like, we're not going to have refugees, you know, even feel comfortable in the way that people can feel when they're thinking lazily. Like, oh, refugees must look very different from me. Yeah. He was like, they're not going to look different from you. You know? This is always like the battle, right? The idea that like you... Like it's the it goes back to the old Star Trek episode. They're white on the right side and I'm white on the left side. Like, and that's why we can't get along, you know, like that very base idea. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating because then you have Clive Owen, of course, like at the center of this. And like Corona said that the reason that he wanted Clive over any other actor at this moment, A, because he could get the funding for Clive. Like there are only a few things that actually helped him get the funding when Hollywood did not want to do his original script of this. Like one Koran himself had just done a Harry Potter movie when he couldn't get his his first idea of Children of Men made. By the way, and one Children of the best. Of Men, that's where he got like the clout of Children of Men is from doing a Harry Potter movie. And then two, because Clive Owen was like suddenly very hot and everybody wanted to cast Clive Owen and everything. And I didn't realize this about Clive Owen, but that Clive Owen had gotten hot in Hollywood because of all these commercials he had been doing for BMW. Oh, Did interesting. Did you remember this? Like he I was thought in this- it was the croupier. But it was tied to all of that. But like, you know, five years before this movie came out, he was doing these like really expensive commercials for BMW where BMW was trying this thing to drive traffic to their website. Remember when companies were like, just go to my website. We want you to come to the BMW website. And the way that they were doing it is they were hiring- These short films, right? These short films. Yes. They were giving money to all of these filmmakers. Like tons of just, I mean, we're talking like Ang Lee- Joe Carnahan. I don't know why Joe Carnahan is and, the first And Madonna was in, in one, right? Yeah, Madonna was in, I pulled a clip of this actually. Madonna was in one by Guy Ritchie where she's playing a celebrity that he has, that the driver, the hire, who is the character Clive Owen is playing, has to drive her around. Why are we going so slow? Excuse me? Are you deaf as well as stupid? I said, why are we going so slow? 
people are waiting for me. Well, ma'am, I wouldn't like to put you in any danger. Don't man me, smarty pants. I had to play that one because I don't understand why Guy Ritchie always made his wife look like the most horrible person on the planet in every movie they ever did. But <laughs> there it is again. No, Wong Kar Wai did one where it's like very Wong Kar Wai where like Clive Owen is like hired to like spy on a guy's wife and has this change of heart about it. There's always something waiting at the end of the road. If you're not willing to see what it is, you probably shouldn't be out there in the first place. Clive Owen did this other crazy one with Tony Scott where he's like hanging out for some reason with James Brown, the real James Brown. And then Gary Oldman shows up and Gary Oldman is playing the devil. And James Brown and Gary Oldman are trying to negotiate James Brown staying young forever. And the way that they settle it is by having like a race off where it's like Clive Owen versus 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 Danny Trejo. And it's all crazy because it's done by Tony Scott. The aging process is less of my ability to perform. I can't maintain my fame and fortune. I hear where you're coming from. Does he perform? I don't know. Do you perform? I know a thing or two about performing. Let me tell you about performing. I feel good. That, like, that Clive Owen-ness. I didn't realize that that was it. And so everybody was like, this Clive Owen guy's really cool. He should be the next Bond. You know, and then he wasn't the next Bond. Then everybody was kind of bummed out. But then they made the Transporter series with Jason Statham. And the Transporter was based or inspired by this Clive Owen commercials. I, was I had no say, idea about any of this. It feels exactly like that. It's wild. I mean, it's been actually a fascinating conversation. And I, and I love when we can uncover movies that mean so much to people. And these four movies that we've just talked about, we're going to really break it down next week as we kind of recap and let the listeners decide which one we're going to put on our list. And I have to say that all of them have something to say about humanity. And I think that that's a really interesting through line. And as we continue to think about that and go through your voicemails and hear why you believe certain movies should go on a list. I've just noticed it is about capitalism. It is about the idea of who has the power. And when you have the power, how do you wield that power? I really can't wait next week to talk to you about that. Because in the middle of this film, I was like, this is more of a thesis statement than we've ever really make in putting four movies together. They seem very different. Animation, comedy, you know, period piece sci-fi but yet they all are sharing a very similar point of view about society and the the strive for perfection and how it creates ultimate destruction in a way i love that i want to say kudos to our listeners we already know that you guys are smart and wonderful and talented and the best to hang out with every week and talk about movies with and then hear what y'all are saying about movies but to see the four movies that y'all picked out well done dudes well, 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 well done. done. This has been such a fun month for us, for me, for you, for you, for me, for all for of us. Everybody, for everybody. I've been everyone. having a good time. I hope you have too. All right. So next week, we're going to get into it even more. And we are going to continue this conversation. And we will pick one film to add to our API list. That is the Amy and Paul uh, film list. It will go on there and we cannot remove it. So 
Keep on calling. Keep on writing. We will make sure that your voice is heard. And just like Julianne Moore's character in this film, we will be sending out a bird song that will keep your film alive forever. Until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium and for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show. You can head on over to unspooledpod.com. numbers but you already knew that if you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car use kelly blue book my wallet on auto trader they're really good at numbers auto trader when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.